appreciate our worship team leading us, serving us as lead worshipers, and uh, he is certainly worthy. Um, as we were just singing that song, I thought of a statistic I, I heard years ago that was done with church people, and half of them said they had not had what they would call a real encounter with God in the last year, but came to church every week. What? That's like a tragedy. So I, I am praying that today we will encounter the living God in his word as we uh, get into it. We're in Acts 4, continuing our uh, study of this wonderful book. And I want to start by asking you to finish this statement. When the going gets tough, that's right, of course. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And I remember even as a boy, believing that and wanting that desperately to be true. I, I really felt like if, if life was going to work out, it was going to be up to me. And it was going to be all about how hard I tried, my effort, my intensity, my commitment. And sometimes that worked out great. But the question is, is that statement really true? I think we desperately would love for it to be true, just in our flesh. Is toughness really the key to responding well when life does get hard? Because it does, doesn't it? Maybe there's something else. question I want you to start with this morning is, what do you typically do? When the going gets tough. What is your first impulse? I'm not saying it's the right or the best. Just, but what do you naturally do without even thinking when life gets really hard? I'm going to give you a few options to choose from. Now, I'm sure there's others. But here's four common reactions to the difficulties of life. Diplomacy. Dom domination disillusionment, and desertion. Let's go through each of those. Diplomacy, this is one of my go-tos. I just start to negotiate. I'm trying to cut a deal so that both sides are happy and the, and the hard stuff goes away. The second is domination. That's where you just get big and intimidate. Whatever it is in front of you that you don't like, whatever is hard, you just get harder. And try and overwhelm it so that you can move the opposition out of the way. Disillusionment. That's, you capitulate. Just You conform out of insecurity. It's like, well, I, I'm sorry, maybe I just overstepped my bounds or whatever it might be. And you just kind of shrink back and fit in, disappear. And then lastly, desertion. You evacuate. This is passive indifference. Just shut down and run away. Those are natural instincts to the difficulties of life. And I should clarify that so much of what's tough in our lives today has to do with our circumstances. And, and that's okay. 
And everything that we are going to talk about this morning certainly applies to the circumstances of life. I'm talking about like uh, job loss, health issues, um, relational friction, that kind of stuff. That's real. That's painful. It's hard. Those are real difficulties that come from living in a broken world. But what I want us to notice this morning is the kind of tough that is introduced in our passage, which has nothing to do with just all those normal circumstances of life. There's a very particular reason why the going gets tough in this passage. Now, quick review. This is chapter 3 and most of chapter 4. Just very quick flyby. Remember, Peter and John heal a man who was lame from birth. So over 40 years, he's sitting outside the temple. They heal him completely, fully. He jumps up and he's going. He goes with them into the temple. It says he is leaping and walking and praising God. They go into the temple. This is his first time there. Everybody knows him, and a crowd starts to gather. They are amazed at what's taking place here. And as they come up, Peter goes into his first sermon. And he goes on to tell them that the God that they worship in this temple, these are Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... That God, they explain, is the one who healed this man through Jesus, who happens to be, by the way, the righteous and holy one that they crucified just a couple of months ago. Kind of sobering for that crowd. Peter also explained that their sin could be forgiven by turning to Jesus and trusting in him. And we're told in chapter 4, verse 4, that 5,000 men, and I'm assuming others in their families, trusted in Christ that day. They believed the gospel, and they were saved. So, a pinnacle, right? Things are going good. That's exactly what we would hope for in that kind of moment. But something else was going on. We're told in chapter 4, verse 2, that the religious, religious leaders became annoyed with Peter and John. They arrested them for teaching the resurrection of Jesus. So right there, the going gets tough. It starts to get hard for these two apostles the religious leaders, after arresting them, interrogated them, and after going through a lot of that, even overnight, they found that they had no reason to hold them, and the crowd would have opposed that, and so they let them go, but they warned them, don't ever speak his name again. Don't teach resurrection in the temple, and then they sent them on their way. That's the kind of tough that we're focusing on today. Doesn't have anything to do with health or job, relational friction. Has to do with sharing the gospel. That kind of tough. And it's a category of tough that many of us may never have experienced. 
And that just happens to be kind of the, the era of history that we live in, the country that we live in that has been very sympathetic to Christianity for a long time. But just know this. There's probably a day coming if you live long enough when if you're willing to voice publicly what you believe about Jesus Christ, somebody somewhere is going to tell you to stop it. And they may do that in a variety of ways, but, but you ought to be ready for that. And it may get tough. And so the question we're trying to get at is, well, what do you do when that happens? How do you respond? How do you avoid diplomacy and domination and disillusionment and even desertion? Let me give you some examples of, of what this could look like. Singles, got a few of you in the room. How about this person that you're interested in and you're feeling some chemistry and they come to you one day and they say, hey, you know what? Um, I mean, I respect you and everything, but this Jesus stuff is kind of over the top. And I would feel a lot closer to you if you would just sort of dial that back. Anyone here with a job? What if your employer comes to you and says, hey, I've got a great opportunity. It's a wonderful promotion. But I have noticed that you're kind of vocal about your faith, and I need you to leave that out of the boardroom. And the implication is if you aren't willing to do that, there's no promotion. Parents. Your child qualifies for some kind of prestigious school or team, just some amazing opportunity for them. But you find out the leader of that organization, whatever, um, they're pretty hostile toward what they would consider Christian families and homes. So what do you do as a parent? What does a godly response look like in those very tough situations where there's real threats, real tension, high stakes, and a cost that is potentially painful? The passage that we're looking at today gives us a vivid picture of a model response to cultural opposition. And it begins with a missional crossroads. And here's the, here's the two options. Think of it as a fork in the road. You've got self-preservation on one side, and these are generalities, but self-preservation on one side and gospel proclamation on the other. And you can't really do both because there's a lot that's outside of your control. At the end of the day, really, we can only control us, right? We can't control what the people around us do with what we say. Now, think about Peter and John. When, when the leaders were threatening them, warning them, they didn't say that they couldn't believe in Jesus or the resurrection, right? That was totally fine. Just don't talk about it. Don't tell anybody. Keep it to yourself. 
If you want to believe that, God bless you. But don't tell anybody else about it. The implication there was, if they would be silent, then they would be safe. And then they let them go. Jesus, on the other hand, what did he tell them to do? Go into all the world. Remember Great Commission? Go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Do you guys know of a way to do that in silence? Like you got to speak up. You got to talk about this guy named Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he means. You have to say it. And then there's an, there's an actual decision involved where a person says, I'm not going to trust in myself. I'm going to trust in this person that you're talking about. So, right, there, vocal interaction is involved in all of that. So what did Peter and John do? They did exactly what Christ trained them to do. They did it in the presence of the religious leaders But when they left, when they were released, when they were free, and they could make a new, fresh decision about what to do with the tough situation that they were in, they did just what Jesus taught them to do, and they modeled a great response here. Here's a principle that we can take away today from this passage. It'll change that initial statement that we said at the beginning, when the going gets tough, the spiritually tenacious turn to God. When the going gets tough, the spiritually tenacious turn to God. Now, spiritual tenacity is different than stubborn self-will. They both involve action and a choice, but it's really the difference between dependence And independence. Spiritual tenacity is dependence. It's an act of vulnerability, of need. Like you need God to be God. Stubborn self-will says, one of my grandchildren, this is uh, their favorite statement these days. I got this. (laughs) Like, yes, you do. (laughs) Um, That's independence. That's saying, when the going gets tough, I got this. I'll take care of it. Very natural, not very fruitful. So then let's think about this description with uh, a definition I heard years ago of successful evangelism. That's what they're doing. And that is sharing the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. I would love for you to memorize that. If we're going to be gospel proclaimers, then we need to do it this way. Share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. Now, when I learned that definition, what we were typically talking about was what kind of results we would expect in the life of the hearer. So we would say, you know, just share Jesus Do it in a way that, you know, don't make it hard to be heard. But then at that point, it's up to God and that person. So you kind of 
leave it there. But I think there are other results that we need to take into consideration. Like, what happens to me when I share the gospel? What about those results? So for these guys, they were threatened. Later in the book of Acts, we're going to see them beaten. We're going to see a guy stoned. What about those results? Are we willing to share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave those results to God? And some of them may be incredibly painful and difficult. Isn't that isn't that what holds us back? It's those results. It might even be that person that we're sharing with just getting red-faced and yelling at us and cussing us and calling us names and who knows what else. When the going gets tough, the spiritually tenacious, they don't negotiate, they don't intimidate, they don't capitulate, and they don't evacuate. They faithfully the commun- communicate the gospel and they leave all of the results to God. Let the chips fall where they may. These early Christians made four key moves that I think model what I'm talking about perfectly. This is something that we can do day in and day out as we're walking with Christ. So the first thing that Peter and John did when they were released, this is in your outline, they run home instead of running away. Verse 23. Look there. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Those guys could have left town. They could have distanced themselves from the rest of the apostles, kind of taken a low profile. Amen. (laughs) But their muscle memory after three years with Jesus was to go back to their friends, to their community of faith. What do we say around here? Together is right. They believed that. They would have thought, why would I go anywhere else rather than going back to the same people that that believe all of this stuff that I believe? They didn't attempt to stand alone, and neither should we when the circumstances of life get fierce. We are better when we stand in community. So Peter and John locked arms with the rest of the church. They're going back to all the the apostles and all of the new believers. They're they're living in community as we saw in uh, 242. And they did just what children do when they feel threatened. Think about when you were a kid. Think about your kids. They go find dad, don't they? Right? Right? I mean, when life gets really big and it's really scary, you go find dad because he can take care of it for you. Look at verse 24. When they heard it, so Peter and John come back, they report everything to the church. And when the church hears it, 
they lifted their voices together to God. And here's what they said. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So if we're going to do what they did, we find dad instead of fending for ourselves. We don't take matters into our own hands. We don't say to God or anyone else, I got this. We cry out to our Father. And we ask Him to do what only He can do. We sang that just a moment ago. Now here's what I mean by find Dad. He's not lost and neither are we. The disciples, I I want you to notice this, they didn't assume that they knew what to do. They, They started with or started from a place of, I'm not sure how to respond to this. I might have ideas and thoughts for sure, but I want to do what God says to do. So I'm going to go to him first. They did assume, in light of their calling, that their heavenly Father would gladly guide them. Jesus told them, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to show you where to go, what to say, how to respond. That's, he's the helper. That's why he's in you, so that you will know what to do when you come to these important moments of decision. And then they rehearsed in prayer what they learned to be true about God from his word, led by the Holy Spirit. Notice the most significant attribute they highlight here in this prayer is the sovereignty of God. And I know in our day, um, that word gets thrown around, and I think kind of carelessly. It's just sort of this broad stroke blanket statement that, well, God is sovereign, and then we all just assume we know exactly. That means not that God causes everything. It means that nothing happens that he doesn't allow because he has absolute authority. This is his kingdom. He is the ruler. He has given the enemy a measure of influence, a measure of power and control in our world, but just never make the mistake. God is in control. And everything that happens, while he doesn't necessarily cause everything that happens to happen, all of it ultimately gets history exactly where he wants it to go. That's sovereignty. That's his oversight over all that happens here. So they address their voices 
to the one who was sovereign over four things they mentioned. In verse 24, over creation. That's pretty important. If God created all things and he's sovereign over it all, that's very comforting that all of the universe is under his control. Secondly, he's sovereign over the very words of King David. He's quoting from Psalm 2 there, which again, we've talked about this. There was immediate application in in David's experience, but then they're guided by the Holy Spirit, applying it to their current situation. So they're saying that the nations, the people, the Jewish leaders, they're all raging, and God's sovereign over that. That's not outside of his control. Whatever they're doing, he has allowed it to happen. Thirdly, he is sovereign over the enemies of God's anointed, Jesus being the primary that they're talking about, but as members of his body, it would apply to them as well. Jesus himself said to to Saul, remember when he confronts him, he says, why are you persecuting, not my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? He's so identified with his believing community of faith. God is sovereign over all of the enemies of his anointed. And then lastly, he is sovereign in verse 28 over history. History is fulfilling God's plan. It's not just kind of finding its way on its own. Now, they are not reminding God of something he might have forgotten about himself. So you could say, well, why would you pray this way? Why would you tell God what's true of him? Maybe it's because we forget (laughs) what's true of him. So as I pray that to him, as I declare that to God about God, it reminds me of what I'm trusting in, who I'm trusting in. They are remembering truth which will renew their minds and keep them from going all of those other places that they might go when the going gets tough. We need to remember those things. David did this elsewhere in the Psalms. Uh, You could just jot down Psalm 115.3 and then Psalm 135.6. Here's the phrase. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Period. God does whatever he wants to. He doesn't answer to anybody. And it's always good and righteous and holy and marvelous and spectacular. It's wonderful, praiseworthy. And all of his works are good for his people. Romans 8, 28. Maybe listen to these words in a fresh way. I know you've heard them a thousand times. Listen again. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Maybe we could put in parentheses there, especially when the going gets tough. 
He is bringing about good things in your life and in mine. And we need to know that. Or we don't respond well. We go a lot of other places. So having run home and found dad, these first century Christians ask big. And they do that instead of settling for safety. It was interesting in the COVID experience that we all had, the the significance that safety began to take in our culture. And I don't mean that we shouldn't think about it. I'm not talking about just taking stupid, unnecessary risks. But I'm just saying, and I've said this before, like, is that, is that our highest aim? Safety? Is that really what we're after? And if we only had safety, then everything would be fine. To me, I think that's, that's a low bar. I think God wants far more for us than safety. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I wonder what we might have asked for. In the Old Testament, when they would pray, stretch out your hand, it was basically decimate the enemy. Let the wrath come down. It's interesting here they're praying that he would heal. Specifically, there's three things here, and none of which apply to their circumstances. They say, look upon your threat, look upon their threats, Give us boldness, and then just paraphrasing, display your power. That's what they ask for when they go and get stuff. Look upon their threats is basically just to say, Lord, handle our enemies, which are your enemies, for us, however you want to. It's interesting, later in Acts, we're going to see that many of those religious leaders who were threatening them actually come to Christ. It's a beautiful picture. But remember, it's, it's, they are turning this over to God. So they're saying, you handle our enemies for us. We're not going to take that into our own hands. Secondly, give us boldness, which I think is saying, enable us to overcome our natural fears of speaking. And then lastly, display your power. Do what only you can do, and particularly to validate our message. Like, we don't want people to believe this just because we said it. We want them to see you in it. So do whatever you need to do, God, so that people can believe that this message is true. Their impulse, remember I asked you at the beginning, what do you do when the going gets tough? Their impulse in the face of opposition was to look to God, not to themselves, not to their own resources, not to their own strategies. They looked to the power of God, promised them, remember in Acts 1.8, 
This is in your outline. You will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be what? My witnesses. You will speak up when the Holy Spirit indwells you. And that will accomplish all that God intends. Now, I love here that, that in this particular instance, God reassures them in a very particular way, a miraculous way. Um, look at verse 31. It says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So their fourth move was to testify instead of taking a pass. And I don't want us to to minimize that because they could have. And there were plenty of people that did. Well, again, we'll see this as we go throughout. People like this are mentioned in many of the epistles that Paul wrote where they just finally say, I've had enough. And they just head off in another way. But they spoke up, and this is spiritual tenacity, not stubborn self-will. But look what God did. The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. One commentator, I love this, said, The place was shaken, but that made them all the more unshaken. They were confident that God was at work. It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not, as we have been saying, this is not a second indwelling, a second baptism. They're not getting more of the Spirit. The picture here is that they are accessing more of the Spirit that they already possess. They are governed. They are led, controlled, enabled by God's Spirit. And what they do, again, is exactly what Jesus said would happen. They witness. They testify. They speak of Jesus. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit is in control. So if you and I don't, it just simply means that we're not yielding in that particular way in that area. And I'm not saying that to beat you up. I'm subject to that as well. But if I don't acknowledge that, if I don't just say, Lord, I'm doing my thing instead of your thing, then I'm just going to keep doing my thing. But if I, in this moment, if I pray, Holy Spirit, I want you to lead me. I want you to do what only you can do. Enable me to be bold about my faith. There is only one answer you will ever get from God on that one. You will speak. Because that's what he's all about. So the chief desire expressed in their prayer is to continue proclaiming the gospel boldly. And that's exactly what happens. So, When the going gets tough, run home, find dad, ask big, testify, and leave the results to God. I want to ask you to consider for a moment here, so what? 
Lots of opportunities to think about our natural response. Maybe some places where the going has gotten tough and what we're doing with that right now. And maybe there's a prayer that you could begin praying today where you're inviting God to move into those circumstances, particularly related to speaking of him, and ask him to do a work in you and through you in the midst of that hardship. Take a few moments, prayerfully consider that, and then I'll close us in prayer. heaven we're so grateful to be with your people in your place in your presence and we just confess again that we need you and we need each other we need your word we need your spirit and we really do want to be bold with our faith but we are often afraid for a lot of reasons. So Lord, we just bring that to you and we know we're not the first people in history to be afraid. So would you meet us in that place and uh, reassure us with the truth of your word? Thank you for this model that we've gotten from the uh, early church. And Lord, we pray that you would make uh, their boldness true of us and that we would very freely speak of Jesus and leave the results to you, all of them. And thank you for hearing us, enabling us, loving us so perfectly. We pray all that in Jesus' name.